0: All right. We have come to number five in our lessons in church history, and we are going to shift gears. And the title of this particular session is called The Apostolic Church. So it's number five, The Apostolic Church. I'm hoping to cover this in one lesson. I'm not sure. We may not finish, but we can kind of wrap it up next week, and then we'll start a new series uh, of lessons at that point. But let's recap what we've learned so far. So far, we've sought to provide some kind of a brief overview of the backdrop to the founding of the church. We discovered that that backdrop basically has two prongs to it, two two points. One, the Roman Empire, and we discussed those three major forces that held the empire together. And we looked at four of the main religions that were dominating the empire in those days. That's the Jewish background. The other background, I mean, the, that's the Roman background. <laughs> I kind of tipped my hand, didn't I? The other prong to that is the Jewish background. And we talked about the four main groups that dominated Jewish life in those days. We talked about the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the zealots, and the Essenes. The last part of what we looked at just in the last uh, the last of our lesson last week, was that uh, we noted that the Jews mostly made up uh, of those that were apart from that area that we refer to as Palestine. They were the group known as the Diaspora. They they just did not live in that area any longer because of persecutions hundreds of years earlier, because of invading armies they were dispersed to various places. And we read in the book of Acts, we read First Peter of some of these places of where they were dispersed. We said they were also other areas like Rome and Alexandria, large group in Alexandria. But we refer to them as the Diaspora. And the, ma- the majority of those were what we call Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic Jews. These were Jews who had assimilated a good deal of the Greek culture Uh, and the Greek language. Most of them spoke Greek. They could probably speak a little bit of the the language of the Jews in that day, which would have been Aramaic, but most of them spoke Greek as their their native tongue. They would have read the Septuagint. This is one of the reasons that they had the Old Testament translated into Greek was because of these individual Jews who were Hellenistic, who spoke Greek, read Greek, and so they had the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek, them so we talked about the hellenistic jews and then lastly in our lesson last week we made mention of a group known as the god fearers the god fearers these were greeks who had grown up to appreciate some aspects of judaism these are not jews these are greeks these are pagans but they grew up to appreciate some aspects of judaism mainly it's monotheism They appreciated that for some reason, and they also appreciated their their manner of life, their their morality, as it were, for their living. They were not converted. They were not what we would consider believers, but they were considered God-fearers. They would give alms uh, to the Jewish church and, and the Jewish synagogue and whatnot. Our example of a God-fearer we gave last week was Cornelius, take it from Acts chapter 10. He was a God-fearing man, and God, in his sovereignty and his providence, sent Peter over, we all know the story in Acts 10, of bringing him and his family, uh, those who could, to faith, and then were subsequently baptized. So that's the historical backdrop to the foundation of the church. Tonight, we want to shift gears a little bit and we're going to turn our attention to the earliest days of the church under the leadership of the apostles. And again, this will be brief. We could, we, could spend, you know, we could spend months, years on this one topic alone, but we're going to have to make it as brief as possible in order for us to get through this, this story of church history. Looking at the book of Acts, we're going to examine the life of Christ and its impact on the work and ministry of of its earliest followers. In its infancy, the Christian church was comprised of Jews almost exclusively, if not exclusively, almost entirely a Jewish assembly. When you get... uh, Yeah, and it centered its worship in Jerusalem and in the temple. That's where the worship was. The Jews remained very faithful and very pious if unbelieving, they were very pious and, and trying to follow the law as best as possible. They worshiped in the temple in Jerusalem, they continued to obey the laws of Moses, so you have this this outward obedience, and they still looked down on Gentiles as unclean. So this is a picture of those early those those early people that to whom the, the Lord ministered. The epicenter of faith. Of these individuals, of, of, of the church, when it became uh, a, a church growing in Christ and, and knowing Christ, when they came to faith, the epicenter of that faith was not so much the life of the Lord and not so much His death, but His resurrection. That is—that's the hinge right there. That's what's so important. That's the issue that Paul dealt with so. Extensively in 1 Corinthians 15, that without the resurrection, we have no faith. Right, we have a faith, we have a, a, a man who lived, we have a man who died, but without the resurrection, everything is vain. And he said, We might as well be like the Gentiles and eat and drink and be married because this is all there is if there's no resurrection. So the epicenter of their faith was on that resurrection. I want to show you that by looking at some passages in Acts. We're not going to spend, a, well, we will spend some time on it, but we're not going to go through the entire book of Acts. We're just going to take some, some verses, all right? So if you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and we're going to read a portion where the disciples are seeking the Lord's will, and direction in replacing Judas, who was the betrayer, with another apostle. They said that we need to have twelve. They recited Old Testament uh, Old Testament passage where one needs to take his place, and so they are doing their best to replace that apostle who betrayed the Lord. And this is the discussion we read, Acts chapter one, verse twenty-one. And so they're discussing this person that needs to be replaced in the in the apostolic band so one of the men acts 121 who have accompanied us during all the time that the lord jesus went in and out among us so they're they're discussing the qualifications for this individual what, what who who has to, who has to have what qualifications does this person have to have all right he has to be somebody who walked with us who saw the lord Right, knows of his ministry, verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. All right, so that's, that's the very first mention there that this is so vital that this person be able to witness and know the living, raised, resurrected Christ the second passage I want you to turn to is Acts chapter 2 Acts chapter 2 and this is Peter at Pentecost we get to Acts 2 and verse 22 you have these words Peter says men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So you have in these verses this juxtaposition of two things. One, this was absolutely the decree and work of the sovereign hand of God, and yet these men are at the same time responsible. Jesus said, you crucified. You delivered him up to be crucified. Uh, Acts chapter 3, if you would. Again, Christ was risen from the dead. Acts chapter 3, we find this this sermon by Peter. Peter, of course, and John have, raised, have helped this lame man. And now a crowd gathers, and of course, Peter sees this crowd, and he's going to preach. He's going to speak to them from Solomon's portico. Acts chapter 3, verse 14, you find these words. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, Whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Again, in each chapter, the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection. Acts chapter 4, please. In Acts chapter 4, you find at the very end of that chapter, Luke's description of these early believers. And he says of them in verse 32, Now, The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Again, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, epicenter of their faith, that resurrection. Acts chapter 5, if you would please. Acts chapter 5. This is Peter and the apostles when they were arrested. They said in verse 30 of Acts chapter 5 Peter said, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Again, what's so important? It is that resurrection. One more passage in Acts. And if you would, let's go closer to the middle of Acts in Acts chapter 17. And this is Paul, of course, in Athens at the Areopagus. And Paul is speaking to these individuals. You get to Acts 17 and skipping down to verse 30. You'll find these words. Paul says to them, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this, and of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So we know it's, it's one thing for a person to say he is living a good life and is going to sacrifice his life for others. It's another thing for that individual by the hand of God to be raised from the dead. And so we serve as our hymn always says, we serve a, a living Savior who is in the world today. Right. So he, that resurrection is the epicenter of their faith. And really, folks, it would not be difficult to go through Acts and find more verses. This is a simple, you know, Bible concordance exercise. Easy enough to find these words. He raised him, resurrected him. You could go through the entire book of Acts. It's all about that resurrection from the dead. In fact, Nick Needham, his in his Church History Volume writes these words. He says, quote, So whichever period of church history we are studying, and we'll study a lot of periods, no matter what period we're studying, he says. I'll continue with Needham. It is always worth pausing and reminding ourselves of this, and he puts this in italics. The entire history of the Christian church is rooted In one central reality, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If Jesus of Nazareth had not risen, there would be no church history. And so that is the epicenter of our faith, that we serve a living Christ who is with us. He dwells with us. We are now his temple. There is no longer that centralized temple in Jerusalem we are his temple, and he dwells with us as a living Savior. And so everything we're going to study in the months to follow flow from that resurrection. Okay. We said earlier that the Christian church in its infancy was predominantly Jewish, if not exclusively, when, in its very, very infancy with just Jesus and the calling of his 12. Just Jewish. However... When you get to the end of the first century, we find that the church has shifted from being you know, almost exclusively Jewish to being predominantly Gentile. Jews were included. Paul was a part of that group. He was a Jew. Lots of Jews were included in that. But it was predominantly Gentile. And really, we can't help but ask ourselves, how did that happen? Why is that? Why is it that, that Jesus... Of the of the Jewish nation, started a church, built a church, founded his church, drawing these people into that that olive tree where those branches were lopped off, and we are grafted into that. Why is it now predominantly Gentile? Right. Well, there are lots of answers to that question, but we're just going to find we're going to follow in this text of Scripture just a line of, of, of God's hand in moving us in that direction. All right, you're there in Acts. I think you're in Acts 17. If you would just flip a few pages back to Acts chapter 6, and we'll look at verse 1. Acts 6, this is early in the church's history, and again we're talking about the apostolic church, that church under the apostles, as, as they reigned, as they ruled on earth. Acts 6 and verse 1, you have these words. Now, in those days, or in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. In this verse, we find a description of two groups of people. Luke refers to one group as the Hellenists. He refers to the other group as the Hebrews. All right, so what's that a reference to? What's going on here? Well, you may remember that in our discussion last week, I believe it was last week, we referenced Hellenistic Jews, or Hellenistic Jews. And I mentioned it earlier in our introduction this evening in, our, in, our, in a few minutes of our review. These were Jews, mainly of the Diaspora, but Jews who had assimilated some of the Greek culture, spoke the Greek language, and these were referred to in Luke, Luke refers to in Acts as the Hellenists. Right? They, are, they are Jews, but they, are, they have introduced into their lives a lot of the Greek culture. There's another group that Luke references called the Hebrews. Right? These are Jews that, at least for the most part, were born there in, and we'll call it Palestine, uh, and did not assimilate the Greek culture. They, they eschewed the Greek culture. Um, the Palestinian Jews, having been raised in that Jewish homeland, thought themselves, and again, this is a broad brush, it's a broad brush, but for the most part, we could characterize the, the largest group of them as as feeling superior to the others. Uh, they regarded themselves as true Jews. Right? They looked upon the Hellenistic Jews as foreign and a bit on the corrupted side, right? So there still was that clash even in, in this assembly of the Hellenists and the Palestinian Jews. The Hellenistic Jews viewed themselves as far more cultured, right? And in more in touch with the world, right? As opposed to their close-minded and their, you know, their narrow cousins, the Palestinian Jews. So, And again, I'm painting with a broad brush, but this would be the the characteristic of of these individuals. We're not going to turn there, but if we were to turn back to Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, we would read there that the Christian church had arranged a system whereby they might aid the poor among them. They pooled a lot of their money, and they would use that to help those who were in need. Widows, in particular, uh, and orphans in particular, right? Because these individuals really didn't have much help. In this day, we all know it, they depended on their families for a great deal of help and support. We have you know, other mechanisms now to help these individuals along with the, the charitable giving of the Lord's people. But in those days, widows that were left on their own, they, they would either beg or starve. And so, or same thing with orphans. So the church had a mechanism to help these individuals and provide for their needs. By the time we get to Acts chapter 6, we're seeing this mechanism working itself out. The Hellenistic Jews believed that their widows were being neglected. So something's going on. Now, we have no reason to believe that this was a false claim. There are some who say, well, these people... You know they they really weren't being neglected. They were just griping. Well, we have nothing nothing in the scripture tells us that. Nor do we have anything in the scripture that reveals the cause of that oversight. You know, we're not told why these individuals were being neglected. I'm afraid that we can speculate because we know the human heart, and maybe there was a bias against these individuals. We don't know that, so we're not going to cast aspersions on the on the early. We don't know that. All we know is that they were being neglected for some reason, possibly just an honest oversight. We don't know. But I'll tell you one thing. They very quickly remedied the situation, didn't they? You know, The apostles said, choose out men. And the men that they chose were Hellenistic men. These were the Hellenistic Jews. These men will now be responsible for the dispersion of this. All right. So you seek this out. So we have, and we have what a lot of people believe as the early uh, beginnings of, of the deaconate, deacon, the, the right? The work of the deacons. Would you turn now, please, to Acts chapter eight? Again, we're going to see this. We're looking, we're looking in the Scripture for this transition from an, exo- an exclusively Jewish background, Jewish church, to a predominantly Gentile church. All right, Acts chapter eight, and we'll pick up a reading with verse one. We know what's already taken place in Acts chapter 7, and that is the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen in his proclamation of the gospel. In fact, if you read Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 and Peter's sermon in Acts 2, there's a great deal of similarity. And it's just an interesting thing to see in the hand of God that both of these men were successful, but in two different ways. We never say, well, you know, Peter was successful because thousands were added to the church. Stephen was unsuccessful because he ended up being a martyr, right? We we never want to look at it that way because God's word never returns. Boy, it will accomplish what it's sent to accomplish. And this, in fact, really, and and it did. So you get to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, you find this. Paul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And it doesn't say it in the text, but we know from history that that persecution did not come from the Roman government. It came from the Jewish leaders against these individuals. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, I would say that was successful, right? Because now you have the gospel being spread out away from that area in Jerusalem. Then you have these last three words in that verse, except the apostles. And that's interesting. You have this martyrdom of Stephen, now this persecution by the religious leaders, and there's all these people are scattered, except the apostles. They stay. Because of the very bold preaching of Stephen, who is, again, a Hellenistic Jew, the church was persecuted and many were forced to leave. Many of the believers, both Hellenistic and to some degree those Palestinian Jews, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Luke's reference in verse one, it says, "Except the apostles," right, may indicate this. And again, we're again we're just going by you know deduction here. We're making inferences. But why not all those Jews, just some? It may indicate that this persecution may have primarily affected the Hellenists. And so they were the ones that were spread out. The Palestinian Jews also spread out. But you can look, when you get to Acts 15, you'll see that a lot of them had come back there and apparently were not persecuted by those religious leaders. Don't know. Again, we're making just a little bit of inferences here. And so it appears that those Palestinian Jews were not as affected by this persecution as the Hellenists don't know all we know is that now there is a scattering of the people of the Jews being being scattered from this point on the church in Jerusalem was pretty much freed of those hellenists and made up of palestinian jews led by the apostle james and we're going to read of some of these who were of the circumcision party when we get to acts 15 well we won't we won't in our lesson but it, when, in our reading of Acts, you'll get to Acts 15, and Paul has to come and give a defense. You know, they, hey, what, what is this about the, all these Gentiles coming to faith? And he comes and gives a defense of this to the circumcision party because they said these individuals need to be circumcised. Right. Um, you are there in Acts 8. Would you skip down to verse 4, please? Verse 4. And we're talk, now we're seeing the, the results of this. this of these Jews out of Jerusalem. Acts 4. Acts 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed so there was much joy in that city again philip was one of those individuals chosen in act six among the hellenists a hellenist jew knowing the greek culture speaking the greek language going to these individuals proclaiming the word of god to them and many of them are saved and there's great there's great joy in that city Philip was influential in Samaria, which was sort of a borderland between Jerusalem and the outer Gentile world. So you had, you know, Samaritans were kind of mixed, a right, mixed group. You had Judea right in the beginning, early, and or Jerusalem, Judea. Then you had Samaria, and then you had the uttermost parts of the world, as it were, okay? Samaria being partially Jewish and partially Gentile. The next thing we're going to see is the conversion and salvation of a Gentile centurion named Cornelius. We all know that story. We read, we can read his narrative there in uh, Acts chapter 10, Peter coming to him, and being Peter in the, in the vision that he saw, and then going to Cornelius' house. If you would, turn to Acts 11, though. We're going to look at 11, some subsequent happenings to that, and verse 19. We're going to pick up our reading with verse 19. Acts 11, verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, right? Now, that happened in Acts 7, right? And we read Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 10. Now we're in Acts 11. So we're, now we're still dealing with the results of, P, of Stephen's sermon and his subsequent martyrdom, and then this dispersion of all these people to go out and do what? Spread the gospel. Spread the gospel. Now the now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And now we're out in now we're out in Gentile territory. Right, we're outside of Jerusalem, we're outside of Judea and Samaria, and we're in Gentile character territory, but these are Jews who lived there. Right. Verse twenty. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Who was it that preached the Lord Jesus to them? It was these men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Who are these individuals? Well, these would again would be the Hellenistic Jews. Right. Verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Antioch was the first predominantly Gentile church established outside of Palestine in the Roman province of Syria. And they were first called Christians there. Since these were followers of Christ in Antioch, since these followers were converts out of paganism, all right, so these Hellenist Jews went and preached to the Hellenists there, and then you have non-Jewish people coming to the faith, all right, and then they hear about it in Jerusalem, they send and Barnabas, what's going on? These individuals were not looked upon as a Jewish sect, so they weren't called just a part of the Jews. They were given a name; they were called Christians. Now, it's debatable. Some historians believe that that's a term of derision, that they were, you know, it was it was to belittle them, Christians. Um, it's very possible that it's not necessarily a term of division, a des- derision. It's a reference to the fact that they were of Christ; they were Christ's men. Right? there's a in, in Latin, you can write the letters in English would be I-A-N-I, and then you would have the person's name before that. And so these are people of this person. And so that's, and in Greek, it would be uh, O-O-I at the end, N-O-I at the end, which means they were, they were Christ's people, right? right? So that's where they were first called Christians there. Later on in history, around the 80s, 60s, Believers began to accept that as a term for themselves. Right? And we're not going to turn there, but in First Peter chapter 4, verse 15, you have these words. Peter writes, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So they began to accept that name, and so we now they have since that day been called Christians, people of Christ. And it was from that time, it was from this church in Antioch, that the first missionaries went out. And I would ask you to turn to Acts 13, please. Acts 13. And we'll have to finish with this thought, and we'll complete our thoughts next week as we begin a new section. Acts 13, picking up our reading with verse 1, we find these words. Now, there were, in Antioch, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord, I'm sorry, and while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them then after fasting and praying they laid their hands on them and sent them off and so it's at this point from a predominantly gentile church in Antioch in gentile territory the lord sends out the first missionaries and where do they go they go to the gentiles well not not originally right not not to start paul always went where he went to the synagogues, but then when he was rejected, he went to the Gentiles. In fact, we know Paul as the missionary or the, the apostle to the, the Gentiles. So from this point forward, Peter is no longer in the spotlight. Peter was the apostle to the to the Jews. Right? He's no longer in the spotlight, but the narrative revolves now around Paul and his ministry among the Gentiles, and so we see the hand of God in the life of the Apostle Paul as he spreads the gospel westward into what we now know as, as Europe, right, Asia Minor and then in, in that area of Europe. And through his labor and the salvation of many Gentile souls, the church moved from being an entirely Jewish group to being predominantly a Gentile assembly. Okay. So that was the question we asked at the beginning. How did that happen? And I think we can see through the text of Scripture sort of a movement in that direction. And there are other factors involved, but this is what we see, the hand of God in moving these individuals. All right. We'll pick up another thought on this next week and then kind of wrap this up, and we'll start a new section regarding the apostolic fathers next week. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together as we look into church history, and I pray that we are encouraged, that we are bolstered in our faith as we watch your magnificent, omnipotent, sovereign hand move in the smallest details in the expansion of your church and the teaching of your people. Bless, we pray, in the time we have to come in our prayer time. Bless, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.